Okay, this morning is Sunday. It is February 19th. It is Sunday morning. This morning our message is going to be called, What a Ham. Ham is in the three sons of Noah. What a ham. <laughs> you can turn with me to Genesis 28. We're going to start reading in verse 16, I believe. Y'all tell me when you're there. 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 Y'all are fast. It says, when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. Do you remember what he had just been doing? I guess I could have read that to you. He went to sleep at a place. He laid his head on a rock, and he saw angels ascending and descending in that place. And when he woke up, he went, wow, surely God was in that place, and I was not aware of it. Last week, do you remember what we preached about? It was kivod. What's, what's kivod Hebrew for? Glory. Glory is the significance and weight of God. And I was teaching you that the glory of God is all through the earth. From time to time, this significance and weight of God, you become aware of it in a unique way. Don't you? I mean, we know it's there. You see it in a beautiful sunset. You see it on a ranch while you're alone with your livestock out in a beautiful scenery. And you feel it. And you think, wow, surely the presence of God was in this place. And I just haven't been aware of it. Most of the Christian pursuit is to find a way to be more aware of the presence of God that is already in the creation. We focus so much on His infilling of the Spirit within us. And it is awesome then we don't act like His presence is with us all of the time. And we need to. Jacob came to a place in his life where he went, wow, surely the presence of God was in this place and I wasn't aware of it. You know what he did next? He took the stone where he had laid down his head and he said, I'm going to use this. I'm going to build an altar. This place used to be called Luz. Now I'm going to call it Bethel, the house of God. The truth is the earth is the house of God. Your body is the house of God. God can't be contained. He can't be contained. I'm a preacher and I know He can't be explained. <laughs> but He can't be contained. It's hard even to define Him. That's the whole reason for the incarnation. God packaged Himself in a way that we could understand. He put Himself inside of a human being so that you could see through His actions how God wants you to live, what He wants you to do. But Jacob called this place Bethel, the house of God. Turn with me to John. While you're turning, I'm going to read you this. Okay? Said when Jacob, you're going to go to John 1:49. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, "Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it." He was afraid and said, "How awesome is this place! There is none. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gateway to heaven." Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and he set it up as a pillar and poured out oil on the top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Now with that story in mind, this gateway to heaven, this city of God, the house of God, because God had been in that place and he had previously been unaware of it, what do you think it means in John 1.49 when Jesus looks at Nathaniel and he says, uh, then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under a fig tree. You remember that? A few verses earlier, Jesus said, I saw you while you were sitting under the fig tree. You're a true Israelite in whom there is no guile. And Nathanael believed on him because of that. Look what Jesus says. You believe because I told you I saw you under a fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. Then he added, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now where had that happened? What place in history would every Jew be familiar with? That had happened at Bethel. Jacob had seen that. Jacob laid his head on a rock and he realized God is here and I just hadn't been aware of it. I'm going to name this place so everybody will know House of God so that this one place on the planet will be identified as a place where God is dwelling by His presence. So what did Jesus really just tell Nathaniel? He said, you're going to see greater things than this. What if you see heaven open and angels ascending and descending on me? He's telling him, I am 
the house of God. I am the presence of God. God has been in your presence and you just weren't aware of it. Isn't that true though about our daily lives? We go through so much of our lives and God's presence is there with us. He's around us and we're just unaware of it. And you can look back sometimes and see in your lowest spots. You remember the old footprints in the sand thing? My parents had that in our bathroom when I was a kid and I remember reading it. You know, there are times in your life when you didn't feel it. You didn't look around. You didn't see the altar that identified it clearly as Bethel. But you can look back and see God was with you in it. His presence was there. You had a heart attack, but you didn't die. You had a stroke, but it didn't hurt you. You had a car wreck, and you weren't hurt. You know, you crashed a plane, but survived. Whatever it was, the presence of God was there, and you didn't realize it. This is not an uncommon event in the Bible. In Jacob's life, as he was going through things, he realized God's presence was there. That's just a common event in life. Jesus brought his revelation to Nathaniel. He was trying to tell him, I'm the gateway to heaven, buddy. But it's not the only time it happened. Paul's preaching in Acts 14. You can turn there. He's preaching to a group of people like us, non Jews, <laughs> people that previously had been pagans, worshiped everything that shouldn't be worshiped. And because Paul and Barnabas do some healing, the people want to sacrifice to him. They think he's a god. And he, he's warning them and he's telling them no and he's trying to teach them. He even tears his shirt, he and Barnabas said, We're men just like you. Don't sacrifice to us. I wonder how many preachers would do that today. Don't think I'm great. Don't lift me up. Look, I'm a man just like you. Now, we, we say, no, stop it, really. Whole time motion with our hands. We love it, you know. Ought not be so. Shouldn't be that way. In Acts 14, verse 15, it says, we are, this is the middle of the verse, we are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, He let all nations, or peoples, that word's ethnos, go their own way. Yet He had not left Himself without a testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Whenever you see people that are joyful in their outside of Christ, you think, well, how can that happen? I thought the Holy Spirit was the oil of joy. It's because God is in that place and they're just not aware of it. Christianity is a faith that wherever we see truth, you can claim it. Paul quotes an Epimedes, a philosopher that was not a Christian. He's a poet, a Greek poet. And he quotes him a few chapters later. Why can he do that? Because what the man said was true. That meant that it was God because He's the source of truth. When you see pure, real joy... That's God. It doesn't matter where who it's being displayed in. He's the source of that joy. God is in the place and we have to be aware of it. Sometimes He'll cause you to have an experience where you have a dream or something and at a strategic moment in your life, you see Him and you realize it. Sometimes it's just general throughout your life. You realize He's been good to you. You've been alive. You felt it. You felt His provision. You felt joy. You've had good years. And he was in that place and you weren't aware of it. Some people, it's a dramatic conversion. In that moment, they're instantly aware. And others, it's kind of a general sense. He's been around all this time and I just hadn't acknowledged it. This was the kavod, the glory of God. That's why I taught you about it last week. Well, moving on from Lystra, we can turn to 2 Kings 6. In 2 Kings 6, we see another instance in which you suddenly become aware of God's presence where you hadn't known it before. Sometimes God shows you in a real general way throughout your life. Sometimes you have a real dramatic heaven's gate type experience where He parts the heavens and speaks to you. That happened to me. To my wife, it was the second experience. Throughout her life, His presence had just kind of been there. Others find it in this place. I have a feeling some of you have found it in this place. In 2 Kings 6, starting in verse 13, it says, Go find out where He is, the king ordered. So I can send men and capture him. The report came back. He is in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. This is a king who wants to find out where Elisha the prophet is so that he can capture him because Elisha the prophet was troublesome to this king. You know why? 
<laughs> he could hear from God and tell opposing forces everything this king was doing. <laughs> he's moving his men here. He's moving. He was a seer. He could see things. But that's not why we're reading this. We're reading this because verse 15 says, when the servant of the man of God got up, and I'll just tell you his name's Gehazi since it's not mentioned here. When Gehazi got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. How many times in your life have you been in a place where you felt like you were surrounded by the armies of a foreign king? All the chariots and all the horses were surrounding you, sieging you on every side. You just couldn't make it in your job. Your marriage just wasn't doing well. Your kids just weren't doing well. Surrounded on every side by troubles. And you think, where is God in all of this? Where is He? If He's a good God, why are there people starving in Africa? If He's a good God, why is there a famine? And all of the questions begin to trouble your mind. And it begins to bog you down. And you think, how can the earth be filled with the glory of God when there is so much pain? You forget about the Bethel experiences where you had dreams and visions from God. You forget about the joy that's been poured out in men's hearts and the food in season and out and those things that were good from God. And all you can see is the armies. And what happened? The man of God looks in verse 16. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elijah prayed, O Lord... Open his eyes so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. Let me ask you something. Did God bring in chariots and horses of fire? Did He bring them in in that moment to comfort Gehazi? No, saints, that's the wrong way to look at it. The Scripture simply says He opened Gehazi's eyes. So many times we are overcome by troubles in our lives and we just need God to open our eyes to see the kavod of God out there, the glory of God in our lives. You can't help it if a blind man can't see colors. He just can't. Do you blame him for it? Do you walk around and shame him for it? When people are trapped in a place in life where they can't see the glory that we're talking about, they just pray that their eyes get opened. And it can come in a variety of ways. They can be surrounded by armies and crying out in desperation. A jailhouse experience, if you will. Or it can simply be that they reflect on their life and they see that God was good to them and provided for them and took care of them. Or it may be that they have a dramatic Heaven's Gate type experience. But the glory of God is in the earth and people just aren't aware of it. Well then... That's people. What about us? What are we called to do as Christians? In what way are we supposed to reflect God? Turn with me to Genesis 9. I want to read you about mankind. Read to you about mankind. In Genesis 9, we have three sons of Noah. Who were their sons? Y'all talk to me this morning. I'm feeling like y'all are sleeping. Ham, Shem, and Japheth. What did we call this message? What a ham. You ever heard that expression? Somebody look at you and say, what a ham. Or that kid over there, what a ham. It's really not all that nice of an expression once you hear this teaching. I mean, we don't mean it bad. It's kind of a cute thing. We, what does it mean when we say somebody's a ham? They're cut up. They're kind of showing out. Literally, what they're doing is showing kind of their carnal, fleshly nature. Not always in a mean or malicious way, but it's not the most spiritual side of them, if you will. What a ham. In Genesis 9, starting around verse 18, you see a story about Noah's sons. And you remember that when they get off the ark, Noah does something? He plants a vineyard so he can make grape juice, right? And then from this grape juice... He manages to find a way to get drunk. Because <laughs> in the Bible, it's always grape juice, right? We need to decide right now, right here and now. I've been talking about this with people for weeks. need to make a decision this morning whether you're going to force your interpretive scheme upon the Scripture to try to make it say what you're comfortable with 
or whether you're going to force the Scripture upon your life to make your life something that the Scripture's comfortable with. Because to the extent that we're uncomfortable with this Scripture and we begin to manipulate it and mold it and make it say something that it doesn't, what we've really done is deviated the picture of Jesus. We have skewed it because He is the Word of God. And that means that if they drink wine at Passover, as Christians, we need to be able to stand up and smile and say, yes, Christians can drink wine. And trust that the same Holy Spirit that is in you to save you, to raise you from the dead, to resurrect you, to bring you into all truth and understanding is there to give you the strength not to drink too much wine, which the Bible declares is a sin. Okay? But the answer is not to twist this Scripture to make it say something that it doesn't because you're scared people don't have any self-control. If you do that once, when, when will it happen again? And in what area? It's okay to do it about wine because you're socially conscious and you're worried about Americans' abuse of alcohol where does it stop? Well, I think we should do it about clothing, okay? And, and then about piercings, earrings, and then about doctrines of various kinds. Change it. If you're not comfortable with it, change it. But don't call yourself a fundamentalist and say you believe in the inerrant Word of God if you're going to do it. And incidentally, those that have changed this Word all believe in the inerrant Word of God. So how do you do that? You just say, well, we're interpreting it incorrectly. Guys, these tricks of the devil have never changed. But I'm not preaching about wine this morning. I just want you to know it's my goal not to bend this to my liking. Doesn't mean I always get it right, but I'm trying. That means even if I'm embarrassed of something in here, tell me something. Have you never read about Lot and his daughters? That embarrasses me. As a Christian, I have a very hard time explaining that to anyone. Seeing good in that. That's not an area of the Word where I go, Wow! Sweeter than honey on my lips, Lord! It's an area of the Word where I go, ooh, peppers, bitterness. That's hard. It may have been sweet in my mouth to read, but it's burning in my stomach. All the things that the Word says, what do I do? I change it? No, I trust God's a bigger God than me. And there's glory in it. I just have to see it. Large portions of Ecclesiastes. I feel the same way, but I hope that doesn't shake your faith. I'm trying to be real with you about this. You can ignore passages of the Scripture your whole life long. You can twist them. You can change them to fit your church or your church's doctrine. I think it's a bad idea. It's a possible solution. I just don't think it's the right one. I think you should change your church, change your doctrine, and change your life to fit the Word. I work in the medical field, and I've learned something. My father, Bobby, is sitting here this morning. He's had some surgeries on his leg, lots of surgeries on his leg, actually. And I found out that surgeons will perform as many surgeries as you let them perform because that's what they do. When they look at a leg, all they can see is a way that they might be able to improve it by surgery. If I had an ulcer on my pinky, one possible cure for that ulcer would be to cut off my pinky. But couldn't we make a decent argument that that's not the best way to cure that ulcer problem? Well, if a problem with the Word is that you don't quite understand how God's working in it, you don't quite see the kavod in it, what do you do? Well, you can cut it off. That's a solution. You can just twist it, change it, surgically alter it to mean something else. But I don't think it's the best solution. Nobody ever admits to doing that, but you can look around you. It's been done everywhere. If you picture Jesus in a three-piece suit, you've already done it. All right, we're reading about the sons of Noah. Noah manages to get drunk. And what happens with his three sons? One of them. Which one? Huh? Ham. Ham dishonors his father in some way. We could, there's been books written about in what way he dishonored his father. It's unimportant. In some way he dishonored his father. Ham was the youngest son of Noah and he dishonored his father. So his father speaks these words that we're going to read over the sons. It's in verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine, great juice, and I'm sorry, I shouldn't be sarcastic when I preach, huh? I'm sarcastic in my daily life and I'm not any different here this morning before you. When Noah awoke from his wine, he found out what his youngest son had done to him. He said, Cursed be Canaan. Why cursed be Canaan? Canaan was Ham's youngest son. Genesis 10.6 tells us that. The lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territory of Japheth. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be his slave. 
Man, that's not a very kind thing to speak over your descendants, is it? In this case, how many people are alive and on the earth? About eight. Yeah, eight that we know of. Why do we say eight? Because Noah got on the boat with a wife. Ham, Shem, Japheth got on the boat with wives. That's four people. So what Noah is doing is laying hands on his sons and prophesying over the future of the human race represented in these three sons. If something was said about Adam, everybody that came from Adam is the human race. Well, the flood has wiped out everybody and all that's left of Adam's descendants are Noah, Ham, Shem, Japheth. And Ham, Shem, and Japheth are Noah's descendants. They're his sons. All people on the planet today came from Ham, Shem, and Japheth. You know what's funny about racism? We're talking about racism this morning in Starbucks. It's an easy thing to creep in when we notice differences between us at times. It's easy to point to other people's differences and think, since you don't have that difference, you're somehow better. There's no such thing as an interracial church. No such thing as interracial groups of any kind. You know why? We're all the same race. Every human being on the planet came from Ham, Shem, or Japheth. Everyone. This very scripture that I'm reading now was used to excuse centuries of slavery. You know why? Because Canaan was said to be a slave. And some of the colored peoples of the world are descendants of Canaan. But not all of them are colored. Isn't that interesting? I want to submit to you today that Ham, Shem, and Japheth are all of our ancestors. Do you think any of you could trace yourself all the way back to one of them without ever mixing with any of the other two? Right? So we could go ahead and say that this prophecy over Ham, Shem, and Japheth is representative of all of mankind, couldn't we? Well, let's find out what it's supposed to mean. Let me tell you first about the table of nations. Let me tell you what it means in biblical sense. And then I want to tell you a spiritual application for your life. Okay? The first is, these are the three sons of Noah. These are representative of all of mankind. You know when the first time after this event we see them get together is? Anybody have a guess? No guesses. All right, that's all right. This morning at the Tower of Babel is where we would pick up. At the Tower of Babel, what happened? All the people on the earth in the plain of Shinar grouped around one leader named Nimrod. If all the people on the earth were there, what does that mean? The sons of Ham, the sons of Shem, and the sons of Japheth grouped there. And what did they do? They had a unified rebellion before God. A unified rebellion where God had to destroy it. You know when the next time in the Bible that all of the three sons of Noah are representative and you can clearly identify it in the text. Anybody have an idea? At the cross. At the cross, what we see is we see a sign above Jesus while He's being crucified. What was on the sign? What did it say? Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews. Here's the King of the Jews. Anybody know the languages it was written in? Help me. Hebrew. Hebrew. Hebrew is the language of Shem. What's another one? Greek. Greek is the language of Japheth. All the Greek peoples of the world came from Japheth. Most Indo-Europeans came from Japheth. What was the next language? Latin. That's Ham. Rome was descendants. Italians are descendants of Ham. In other words, the three sons of Noah show up at the crucifixion with a sign above the Son of God that basically says, Rejection. This is the Messiah of the world and He's being crucified. And a sign above His head identifying Him as the Messiah in all three languages of mankind is there. At the Tower of Babel, God's direction, the Father's direction in mankind was rejected by Ham, Shem, and Japheth's descendants. At the crucifixion, the manifestation of the Son, the bodily form of God is there. And the stamp of rejection from Ham, Shem, and Japheth is above His head on the cross. It's interesting to note that the Bible speaks of one more time in history when all of humanity unites again in a one world government. We get a leader that the world desired. And he also wears a stamp on his head. It's a stamp of 666 or 666. This is the man identified as Antichrist. People have always wondered what that meant. Man's number in the Bible is 6. It's Man was created on the sixth day. 
There are six commandments that tell man how not to sin against other men. Six is a number associated with sin throughout the Bible and associated with man. I believe that when God uh, the Father was rejected by the three sons of Noah, we could stamp a six. When God the Son was rejected by the three sons of Noah, we could stamp a six. When the ministry of the Holy Spirit in these last days is rejected by the three sons of Noah, we could stamp a six. And then the man appears who is the embodiment of all of that rejection of God. The perfect rebellion. Rebellion at the Tower of Babel. Rebellion at the cross. And rebellion in the last days as the abomination that causes desolation in the temple. But I'm not teaching about that this morning. We're teaching about the three sons of Noah. What does this mean to you? Noah prophesied over these three sons. He prophesied a divine order in these three sons. And in these three people groups, something was supposed to happen. He said, blessed be the God of Shem. Why blessed be the God of Shem? Because Shem was the father of the Hebrew people. The Hebrews' God is the God above all gods. The Creator God, Yahweh God. Blessed be Shem. Blessed be the God of Shem. And what was Japheth supposed to do? Japheth is the Indo-European people. These are the peoples of the world that were supposed to come into the tent of Shem. There would be one people group who would have a special revelation, a revelation much like a man named Israel or Jacob had where he realized God is in this place and set up an altar, a memorial for everybody to see and come and dwell in, if you will. Shem was the people group that Japheth was supposed to come in and dwell. Sounds an awful lot like Gentiles coming to be grafted into Israel, does it not? Then there was a third group of people who was supposed to be put to slavery of the other two. The Bible says, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his two brothers. Any way you look at it, no matter how you look at it, in the millennial reign, there will be one group of people that consists of Jews and Gentiles ruling over another group of people. That's uh, Shem and Japheth ruling over Canaan. Say, so, well, Eric, why would you even tell me all of this? Because what's representative in all of mankind is found in you. None of you in here are 100% Shem. None of you in here are 100% Japheth. None of you in here are 100% Canaan. You know what that means? You have a little bit of you that knows who God is. You have a little bit of you who dwell in that place where you know who God is and you have a little bit of you that needs to be put to slavery to the other two. Well, what do we call those little bits? Each one of you is representative of these three sons of Noah. They are all in you. Well, we can go ahead and call Shem what he is. He's your spirit. This is the part of you that has been born again. The part of you that stands right, righteous before God. Right now, this minute, declared righteous. In your spirit, you know what is right. In your spirit, you commune with God. In your spirit is where you are right and it is who you are. What is Japheth then? Why don't we go ahead and skip to Canaan? We'll come back to Japheth. Canaan is the strongest voice in you most of the time. It's your flesh. He's supposed to be subject to your spirit. But he has a voice. We've been talking today, uh, this morning before the sermon, about eating at Rudy's Barbecue. Boy, I love it. My flesh has a very strong voice. It began to cry out for Rudy's about 100 miles out. And I'll be darned if we didn't show up at Rudy's. That's a good example of the voice of the flesh. Not always wrong. Not a bad guy. The flesh is meant to be a part of you. But it's supposed to be subject to your spirit. Now, there was one other guy in there, Japheth. This is the soulish realm. Your mind, your will, your emotions. This is the bridge between your flesh and your spirit. Your flesh has a voice, often wants to do the wrong thing. Your spirit knows what is right. And there is something that goes between the two and reasons it out in your conscience. That's Japheth. Let me read this again to you. Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territory of Japheth. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be his or their slave. Well, why don't we put it together? Let me read it for what they represent. Cursed be the flesh. The lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my spirit. 
May the flesh be the slave of the Spirit. May God extend the territory of my soul. May my soul live in the tents with my spirit. And may the flesh be their slaves. In history, the three times that man gets it wrong are when his soul is not submitted to the Spirit and therefore the flesh is not submitted. Two parts of man are in total rebellion to God and man gets together and does what man should not do, which is exalt himself above God. That happened at the Tower of Babylon. God knocked it down. It happened at the cross and God knocked it down. It will happen again in the last day and God will knock it down. God is in this place and sometimes we are not aware of it. Why are we not aware of it? We are often not aware of it because our flesh is not submitted to our soul and our soul is not submitted to our spirit. When you get man in the right order that we are supposed to be in, there is unity on the earth. There is power present in your life. In fact, we find out that the man Jesus is bringing everything in heaven and on earth under one head. He's putting us in order. Don't be discouraged that we see disorder all around us. This must be. But we also see Jesus in His proper place. And He is bringing everything in submission to Him. You want a blessed life? Learn to make your mind, will, and emotions do what your spirit tells you is right. You want a blessed life even more than that? Let your spirit and your soul, your mind, will, and emotions gang up on your flesh instead of the other way around. How many times have you known what is right, but your flesh had a voice that cried out and said, I want! And the soul said, well, you know, there is a way we can have this. Let's be reasonable about this. Come on. Is it really that bad? Did God really say? That's where all the spiritual battle happens in your life, in the middle part of a man. Your mind, your will, and emotion. When you learn to get your spirit and your soul in league with each other, this is something that has to be set. You set your heart, which is a uh, metaphor for your, your soul. You set your heart on things above. You set your mind on things above. It's something that has to be done. It's a willful decision. To follow Jesus willingly means that you set your will on Him. And when your soul and spirit are in unity, you then have the power to force your flesh to do what it should be doing all along, which is serve the other two. You know what your flesh is for? Your soul doesn't have feet. Neither does your spirit. I don't have a way to speak. I have a way to move around. Your flesh is supposed to serve the other two by carrying them wherever you want to go to do whatever God has called you to do. And you need to think about it like this. Look in the mirror and say, I am a spirit. I have a soul. And I live in a body. And when you get those things in the right order in your life, you will not live for the passionate lust like the heathens do, letting your body tell the king of you what to do. You won't live solely in the soul realm, just thinking about what is best and making your own decisions to do whatever you want to do. Your spirit will be in charge. The soul will fall in line and then the flesh will follow. Why? Because that's how God said it's supposed to be. Whenever we get it wrong, we're in rebellion to God. Whenever groups of men get it wrong, they are in rebellion to God. And it just so happens that this preacher happens to believe when most of mankind has that wrong for the third time in human history, we get a leader who represents the ultimate rebellion to God, spoken about in 2 Thessalonians 2. Let me tell you a little bit about how Jesus chose disciples because I don't have all that much time and I want to make sure that we get to this. In Jesus' day, there's one other thing I want to tell you first. I was reading a text that an ancient rabbi wrote and he said something. And it makes me think sometimes I make stuff too complicated, too difficult. When I'm telling you about Ham, Shem, and Japheth, I wonder, wow, will they really remember that Ham represents the flesh, that Japheth represents the soul, and that Shem represents the spirit when they leave here? And when you go about your week, will that really impact you? Some of you will and some it won't. Let me tell you what the goal here is. This ancient rabbi that I was reading said, I'll read it to you as a quote, if you teach people who they are, then you don't have to tell them what they should do. Isn't that brilliant? 
When you understand that you are a nurse, Craig is a nurse, when you understand that you're a nurse, you don't have to be told what to do at work, do you? You do what nurses do. If you are, to- if you are a fireman, if you understand that's what you are and you see a fire, nobody has to tell you to go put it out. It's what you are. I'm trying to tell you this morning who you are in Christ. You are people that are Bethel. You have found the gateway to God and His presence dwells in you, in your spirit. In addition to being Bethel, you're people that see the glory and joy of God, like what Paul said in Lystra, in all of the earth, in everything you do, you can see God move if you choose to. And like Gehazi, you're people that when surrounded by warfare, your eyes should be opened. You can see the chariots of God around you because this is who you are. It's not just what you do. It is who you are. You are a child of God. Now, this is interesting. You didn't choose Jesus. No, you think you did. You did not choose Jesus. He chose you. That's important for this reason. As we're learning who we are, you need to understand the confidence that God places in you. We spend so much time talking about our failings. I was telling a pastor this morning that we are not just poor old sinners. And I could tell he was kind of shocked because I have a feeling that's how he prays. And I have that feeling because I've spent a long time in those kind of churches and it's how I was taught to pray. We are called to be saints. Well, how do you deal with the glaring contradiction in your life when you hear the voice of the flesh and you know what you are called to be in the Spirit and you see them both there sometimes? Romans 6 tells us what to do. You count one dead and the other alive. The flesh part of you is declared to be dead. That means you are a saint. When we read this Bible story, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about Jesus' day in a minute, but I, I want you to get this point first. Is the miracle of the Exodus that Israel was brought out of Egypt, is that the miracle that Israel was delivered from Egypt? Is that the huge miracle that the Red Sea was split and that all Pharaoh's men drowned and that Israel came through? Is it the miracle that they were delivered or is the miracle that you are still delivered today? Is it the miracle some was healed in the Bible? Or is the bigger miracle that we are still being healed? Is the miracle that Brad was saved a million years ago? Thirty-something years ago, it roughly equates to a million. <laughs> is, it, is, is that the miracle? Or is the miracle that he's still being saved every day? The reason this text is living, the reason it engages us, the reason it moves us, It's not because it's a collection of ancient stories that happened to some other people. It's because it is still happening today. And when you read about Rahab and you see that she deserved destruction, but she found life, you can see yourself in that. You go, wow, I deserve that, but I found life. I didn't deserve mercy, but it was given to me. When you read about Peter's failing and then being restored, you can see yourself in that. The miracle of this text is not that it happened, but that it happens. That's the miracle of the Gospel. I'm trying to tell you who you are. You are what you read in this Word. It's not something that happened to them. It's something that is happening daily. Now, we just need to recognize God's in this place. And that happens by getting Shem and Japheth and Ham in their right order in your life. My friend Craig read to me the other day a quote from Max Lucado. And I could never begin to say it as eloquently as Max did but the part that I drew away from it was that He refused to let what is rotting His body control what is eternal, His Spirit. That is the best perspective you could have. Every time your eyes are trying to tell your soul that it should look at something, and then your soul says, what do you think about this, Spirit? The Spirit says, no. Well, you know, I'd kind of like to look, though. And that war begins. And you're telling, your soul's telling your, your spirit's telling your soul to tell the flesh to use the neck. And it's saying, no, no, I, I don't want to. <laughs> and you feel that battle going on. You need to remember that what is rotting is not supposed to rule what is eternal. Because what is rotting will soon pass away. And what is eternal will dwell forever. You want victory over sin? Get your life in order and start with what's inside you. This is who you are in Jesus. You are righteous because He said you are. You are righteous because He says you're seated in the heavenly realms. Now it's your job to live up to what He already says you are. 
In Jesus' day, there was a rabbinical system. This rabbinical system shed so much light upon the way that Jesus spoke that it's unreal. I, I don't know how I've been in Christianity 13 years and this is just starting to open up to me. It's a shame. But if Paul spent 14 years seeking a greater revelation after he went through this entire rabbinical system and rose to the very top of it, I think it's okay if we struggle with some of these things for a while. The first house of teaching or learning in the Jewish rabbinical system was Bet Sethor. And these are English pronunciations. You forgive me. It's B-E-T, then you've got a space, S-E-F-E-R. Bet Sethor. It means the house of the book. Judah, if you were a Jewish young boy, and you're a Gentile young boy, but you have a Jewish name, we would send you to Bet Sephor, the house of the book, at age six. And Judah would, the very first thing done for Judah is they would set part of a Torah scroll in front of him. And then they would walk by and take honey, which was biblical honey dripped from ripening dates. It's really sweet stuff. It didn't come from bees. They'd rub it on his teeth and his gums. So that when he read this word for the first time, he would begin to see the sweetness of God in it. Is that because God's not sweet all of the time? Of course it's not. But it's trying to get the young man to realize God is in this place and I need to be aware of it because it's a sweetness to me. And Judah would be in this, this bet sephor from age 6 to age 10. Now this next part, Judah, is going to be really hard. Between the age 6 and 10, Judah had a responsibility. It's not going to be just hard for Judah to hear this. It's going to be hard for you to hear this. It's going to be a little convicting. Is it okay if you have a little conviction in church? Between the age 6 and 10, you know what Judah's job was? Memorize. You know what he was supposed to memorize? Wasn't John 3.16. Wasn't the Roman road to salvation. It was the book of Genesis. But that wasn't enough. So we added the book of Exodus. But that wasn't enough. So we added the book of Leviticus. But that wasn't enough. So we added the book of Deuteronomy. And Numbers. The five books of Moses had to be memorized by age 10. This was required for all Jews who went to the house of the book, Bet Sefer. Most did this. Most. But some couldn't. And when they couldn't, then the, what they did was it was kind of like our uh, vocational schools today. Kids that didn't progress on to college needed a trade, so they went to vocational schools. That was the way that started. Well, kids that didn't progress on from this school went to their daddy's house to begin to learn whatever craft their daddy had, knowing whatever they could take out of the house of the book. But the next house or school that they went to, when they graduated from elementary school and went to junior high, if you will, in the Jewish system... It was Bet Talmud, the house of learning. And in the house of learning, what age do you think it starts at? If the other one went from 6 to 10, this one goes from 10 to 14. And in the house of learning, between the ages of 10 and 14, having memorized the books of Moses to get there, what do you think they did? They memorized the rest of the Tanakh. All 39 books of the Old Testament, committed to memory, able to recite and quote, Why is this so important? Is it so important just so they could show they were brainiacs? It was important because most people couldn't afford a Torah scroll for all of the Bible. Each village would maybe have one and they would get together weekly. Do you know why we had weekly church services? So nobody had Bibles. You had to get together weekly to hear a portion of it read from the actual scroll. All of you hold them in your laps this morning. Probably sat in the trunk of your car most of this week. The Tanakh had to be memorized. Most did not do that. Most Jews did make it through Bet Sefer, and most did not make it through Bet Talmud. You know why? That's hard. <laughs> but those that did, some didn't make it through the first school, most didn't make it through the second school. But if you were in the special elite group that made it through junior high, you went on to Bet Midrash, the house of study. We've gone from the house of the book to the house of learning to the house of study. Bet Midrash. This was 
for students somewhere around the age of 14 to start. But not just anybody could go. You had to have memorized the books of Moses. You had to memorize all 39 books of the Tanakh. And you had to apply to a local rabbi. You had to ask for his acceptance as a Talmudim, a disciple. Now, this is funny. It's kind of like getting into med school. Is it just enough to have good grades to get into med school? No. Is it enough just to have good grades in the right curriculum? No. What do you have to do? You have to go sit down with medical professionals and they have to interview you and decide whether or not they think you're capable of learning. That's right out of the Jewish system. A rabbi would interview you by asking you questions. Have you noticed how many times people ask Jesus a question and He answered with a question? It's a very Jewish thing. It's because He's a Jew. He was a Jewish rabbi. Didn't they call Him rabbi? He's a Jewish rabbi. The rabbi then decided something. We have it in our head that rabbi means teacher. And what do you think disciple means? What have you been told disciple means? Student. Now, I taught you that it's more than student. There's a message on our website called Nation of Imitators. And it teaches about that. This morning, I want you to know that Talmudim, disciples, doesn't just mean a student. It means that you would be able to be just like your rabbi. So what the rabbi was doing, if he's questioning Judah at age 14, is in listening to Judah's answers, he's determining whether he even has the capability in the future after more teaching to be like him. And most were excluded. So you went through the first school and some dropped out. You went through the second school and most dropped out. You applied to the third school and most were not even accepted because the rabbi had to be confident that with the right instruction, not you could be similar, not you could possess a knowledge of the Word, they already had that, but that you could be just like the rabbi. Isn't that interesting? Well, why on earth would I go through all of this with you this morning? If Jesus was walking and He saw Peter and Andrew fishing with Dad, isn't that where He found Peter and Andrew? For them to be with Dad, what did that mean happened? They failed in one of the three schools. Doesn't it? If He found James and John, where were they doing? They were also fishing. That means they were dropouts. They were failures. They were not among the top half that was then selected again in the top 10% and then was weaned down again to just the valedictorian. They were not. And what did Jesus do? He said, hey, come follow me. Have you ever wondered why these guys dropped their nets, said, Dad, goodbye, and took off for three years? It's because it was a high honor that they didn't really qualify for. You know why they didn't qualify for it? They just couldn't cut it. They just weren't at the top of what humanity had to offer. Hmm. Turn with me to Matthew. It'll be in Matthew 11. I've got about 10 minutes if you all can bear with me. Maybe not 10. Oh, in Matthew 11? Tell me when you're there. Matthew 11. We're going to be in verse 28. This is Rabbi Yeshua who was declared to be the Hamashiach, the Messiah. Verse 28. Come to Me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me. For I am gentle and I am humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For My yoke is easy and My burden is light. What a strange thing to say. Yoke easy, burden light. When you graduated from Bet Talmud and you were applying to Bet Midrash, you examined the rabbis in the area. You know what you examined? It's called their yoke. The way they carried themselves. The burden that they carried for the Scripture. What they thought 
about each thing and what that meant you had to do as a disciple. There was a house of Hillel. There was a house of Shammai. You remember Gamaliel was Paul's rabbi from the house of Hillel. If you applied to Gamaliel, said, Gamaliel, I would like to be your Talmudim. You would examine his yoke to see what that would require of you. And here we have Rabbi Yeshua telling the Jews, if you're weary, if you're burdened, if you need rest for your soul, the bridge between your spirit and your flesh, if you need rest, help, comfort, come with me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'm not going to make it hard on you. Jesus said, I will make it easy for you. Isn't that interesting? Turn with me to one other verse here. In John 15. I was telling this other pastor about this this morning. I think what took us all back is I couldn't do it without crying and that's not normal for me. Before we read this, I want to start to get this. If at age six you had tried with all of your heart to memorize the first five books, maybe you made it, maybe you didn't. Then from age 10 to age 14, you're trying to memorize the other 39 books. Maybe you made it, maybe you didn't. Then you applied to a rabbi and you'd been turned down. So you picked a rabbi you thought had an easier yoke and would be more accepting, but you were turned down. Now, a failure. You go to work in your father's business. Haven't learned about the Torah and exciting about that, but rejected for your religious calling. You're working with dad and a rabbi comes by. Not just any rabbi, but a rabbi who's making a name for himself above any of the rabbis anywhere in Israel because he's doing things that nobody's ever seen done anywhere. And he looks out and he sees you, the failure, the guy that maybe didn't make it out of elementary school. The guy that couldn't even memorize the first five books and said you went off to be a fisherman with Dad. He says, if you come with me and follow me, I'll teach you to do what I do. How special would that be? How awesome would that be? Maybe that's why he says in John 15, verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my command... You will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's command and remain in His love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything I have learned from my Father, I have made known to you. Before we read this next verse, what he's saying is that none other than Yahweh God was his rabbi. That's where he got his yoke, his way of life. He was just like his father. And now he was asking his talent them to be just like him. And then he reminds them in a way that I can't imagine did anything but bring them to tears. said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command, love each other. If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. Why is it important that the world hated him first? because they were His disciples, which meant they would be just like Him. So whatever happened to Him, whatever He did, would happen to them, and they would do. Now, there's a negative side to this that your mind goes to immediately, but wait, I'm not just like Jesus. I'm trying to get my spirit to submit to my, or my soul to submit to my spirit and the flesh to submit to them, but I don't always get it right. Here's the important part of this message this morning. He thinks you can. The rabbis would ask questions. Students would apply to them. He sought you out and he picked you because he thinks you have the ability to be just like him even as he's just like the Father. 
There is someone who thinks that it can be done because He did it. And He's giving you His strength and His power and putting it in you so that you can be just like Him. Is that a reason to have confidence? Is that a reason to have self-esteem? It might even border on arrogance in some people's minds. Jesus picked you because He didn't only want you to be just like Him, He thought you could be just like Him. This is the only reason a rabbi would take on a disciple. Now, out of all of the apostles, there's only one that we know went through the actual rabbinical school. Only one. He graduated from Bet Sefer. He graduated from Bet Talmud. He graduated from Bet Midrash. He went on to be a rabbi himself, Saul Paulus of Tarsus, outpacing all of his peers. And you know what was required of him before he was allowed to teach the gospel? Go spend 14 more years learning a revelation of who Jesus really is. Study is a beautiful thing. Credentials are a beautiful thing. I hope you all get them. But Jesus picked you because He wanted you to be like Him. Not know everything in the world. He wanted you to act like He acted. How did He announce His ministry? How did He announce it? Anybody know? It's in Galilee. It's from the scroll of Isaiah. Let's read it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news to who? To the poor. To the brokenhearted, release of the captives, binding up the brokenhearted, all of those things. That's how he knows. And he thinks you can be just like him. So what are we supposed to be doing? Your spirit needs to be in tune with God so you realize what his heart wants, what he wants. Your soul needs to be in tune with your spirit so that you together can force your flesh to carry out the commands of God. His heart is in taking care of widows, taking care of orphans. His heart is in feeding people, in praying for the sick. His heart is in doing things. All of the learning that occurred in the house of the book, all of the learning that occurred in the house of learning, all of the learning that occurs in the house of Midrash was for one purpose, to be like your teacher. He picked us because he thinks we can be like him. You ever heard it said that Peter sank? Peter got out of the boat. He walked on the water and he sank. Why did he sink? Spit it out. Why did he sink? Lack of faith. Somebody said it. Lack of faith. That's true. He sank because of a lack of faith. The question is a lack of faith in who? Did he not have faith Jesus could do it? He had faith Jesus could do it. How do you know He had faith Jesus could do it? He could see Jesus doing it. Who did He lose faith in? Himself. He could see Jesus doing it. In fact, when He got in trouble, He cried out, Help me, Lord, I perish! So who did He lose faith in? Himself. Christians quit walking around defeated thinking we can't do this. You can do it. Jesus thinks you can do it. He put a spirit in you to empower you to do it, and I think you can do it. You're called to be evangelists. You're called to be pastors, teachers, preachers. You're called to be administrators. You're called to be merciful. You're called to be loving. You're called to be givers. You're called to feed the sick, visit those in prison. You're called to do the work of Jesus, and you can. Churches tell you you can't because you don't dress right. They tell you you can't because you drink too much grape juice. They tell you you can't because you smoke a cigarette or because you didn't make it through all three schools. Their schools. I'm telling you you can because Jesus picked you. You can do it because Jesus said you can. He is your rabbi and you are His disciple. And that's good enough for me. Because you know what? Even in this Jewish system, that was superior to every other in the world because it was given by God. When the Pharisees and Sadducees who made up the Sanhedrin, brought people like Peter and John, who had failed out of their religious system, failed in their school, been the underachiever, those that just didn't measure up or make it. They took note. These guys have been with Rabbi Yeshua and they couldn't stand up to the Spirit that spoke within them. And Acts makes that point loud and clear. That same Spirit is still in us. 
the same Rabbi Yeshua still has His approval on us and we are still His disciples, it's time to have the faith in ourselves that He placed in us and honor Him by it. I put that quote on the board and I'm going to revisit it every week until I see it happening. A.W. Tozer said it. Do you honor somebody who gives you a watch by asking them what time it is or by using the watch? Jesus has called you His disciple, meaning He believes you can do it. Do you honor Him by continually asking Him to do it for you or doing what He told you to do? It's time that we do it. Stand up. Let's pray. There is nobody in here that cannot succeed. There is nobody in here that is not free to be just like Jesus. There's nobody in here that is an outcast or a failure in the economy of God because Jesus picked you. Among men, you might be an outcast. You might be a failure. You might be peculiar. Maybe they don't like you because you don't wear the right kind of suit. You don't have the right translation of a Bible. Or maybe you just didn't go to their alma mater. Maybe you didn't go at all. You're in good company. Jesus likes outcasts. He likes failures because He knows with His help they can do it. You didn't choose Him. He chose you. Now act like somebody that's been honored by God and chosen by God. Hold your head up high. You are sons and daughters of the Most High and He delights in you. Let's pray. Mighty God,